so I want to welcome all of you to this edition of uh, Conversations on Leadership Matters. Uh, we're privileged today to have as our guest Michael Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, where he carries a specialized uh, portfolio with an emphasis now on poverty, social welfare policy, healthcare, and social security. And uh, Michael, we're really happy to welcome you back to the University of Dubuque. And uh, I, uh, before we start talking, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about the Cato Institute? What, what exactly is Cato? Well, first, let me say it's a pleasure to be talking to you. And uh, I hope your blog gets a wide readership. It's certainly interesting. Um, in terms of the Cato Institute, we are a independent, nonpartisan think tank. Uh, we're not connected with any political party. Uh, we do research and education on a variety of issues, pretty much anything that uh, falls into public policy these days. We do foreign policy, domestic policy, environmental policy, criminal justice reform, which, of course, is very big right now. Uh, so pretty much any issue you want to talk about, Cato is involved in. Uh, we tend to approach these issues from a, a nonpartisan perspective, but an ideological perspective. And that is that we would consider ourselves uh, libertarians in the sense that we believe in minimal government. Uh, we think that uh, our guiding uh, principles are limited government, individual liberty, free markets, and peace. Uh, and we generally uh, look at issues with that perspective. But we also kind of go where the facts take us. Uh, we are very rigorous in our academic research. Well, that's uh, and so as as a think tank in that regard, my my guess is, you know, a, a big portion of your constituency are elected officials. You're providing research, data, uh, information, uh, etc. for for the use of policymakers. Is that correct? We certainly do uh, provide information to uh, everyone from Congress to state legislators to local mayors and city councils uh, and try to provide them with as much information as possible. But we also try to uh, talk to what we call sort of the grass tops, not necessarily the grassroots. We're not sending out emails saying, oh, my God, give us $10 or the world's going to end. We try to talk to the people who in a community who influence that community, because after all, political leaders uh, that's who they listen to. So people at your chamber of commerce or your labor leaders or uh, members of various uh, frontline activist organizations, those are groups we want to talk to as well uh, because they're the ones who are going to make the biggest changes. You know, J James Davison Hunter wrote a book years ago called uh, To Change the World, and he talked about the way that kind of change happens. And I, I like your use of the phrase, uh, at the top of the grass rather than grassroots because he talked about all of us having a sphere of influence and exercising leadership uh, within those spheres of influence. So you're trying to kind of uh, kind of touch people where in, in those areas of respective influence that, that can move the needle forward in ways that uh, are consistent with, uh, with Cato's mission. That's exactly right. I mean, we should all remember that politicians are seldom leaders. Most politicians are followers. They, you know, they're, they're like the, uh, the famous general who looked uh, which way the crowd was marching and they said, I have to jump in front of it uh, because I am their leader. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, that's another conversation. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> so how did you get to Cato? Uh, you, there's, there's a journey there. There's a, a story there. So how did you get to Cato before we get into the actual, uh, your actual work? 
Well, I've been at Cato for 25 years now, actually 26. So I've been at Cato for a long time. Uh, I've always had an interest in public policy. I graduated from Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont, uh, with a background in government and English, and uh, uh, which is not probably the most employable uh, background to have. But uh, but I've worked in a variety of uh, think tanks over the years: the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Georgia Public Policy Foundation, and then about 26 years ago, landed at Cato, and I've been there ever since. So it's been a good fit for you, obviously. Well, I, I like uh, the commitment to rigorous research and the belief in certain principles uh, to guide that research. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I I do too. I do too. So I, I yeah, doing a little research uh, about you and, and your background, uh, you were very active in, in the issues of uh, policy matters around Social Security. Uh, however one would frame that, whether it's privatization or or uh, social security saving accounts, et cetera. Um, are you still active in that or have you moved now more towards uh, uh, policy matters re related to poverty, et cetera? Well, these days I'm doing more activity in terms of uh, poverty issues, but of course still keep my hand in on issues like social security and the debt. Uh, we just actually, I believe the other day, hit $26 trillion national debt for the first time. Uh, that's uh, certainly something to be concerned about. Uh, we're spending uh, trillions of dollars uh, by the month that we don't have in order to deal with the COVID uh, pandemic and its economic fallout. Uh, that means that when young people get around to retiring, which isn't going to be that much longer, uh, Social Security is going to be in much worse shape than it is today. Uh, but right now, politicians don't have much, uh, much stomach for dealing with anything like that. Right. That's that's for sure. And I want to I want to get into because I think there are so many things we can talk about related to not so much COVID, but the effects of COVID, not just on the economy, but on individuals, on individual families, on individual humans, on individuals, economic and personal opportunity. Uh, but before we do that, can you can you sort of just broadly talk about sort of what 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 changed your interest into uh, or how did you morph into the policy matters around uh, poverty? I'm you know, I'm thinking about you've I'm sure you're very familiar with Hillbilly Elegy here by J.D. Vance a number of years ago, which was a just a wonderful, uh, very personal uh, uh, story. And I think captured uh, there were a lot of us who read that book that said, oh, I, I see these, I know who these people are. You know, a lot of us actually grew up in, in similar environments. So how did you, how did you make that pivot? Uh, you know, Social Security lead you into poverty and, and those policy issues or had it always been on the, the periphery because of your work in Social Security? What, how do you think about that? It actually predated my work on Social Security. In fact, it led into my work on Social Security. My my very first uh, books for Cato was the poverty of welfare and uh, helping people in uh, in civil society, and talked about the need for welfare reform and how we can best alleviate poverty. Uh, and in my explorations of that, one of the problems I found out was that low income people sort of. By definition, don't have much in the way of savings. They don't get to put, get, you know, people get rich by being able to invest and save, and poor people are kind of locked out of that. 
And uh, one of the reasons that I got that they're locked out is because Social Security basically substitutes for savings for those folks. But if Social Security can't pay uh, the benefits that are promised, they're going to be left out. Whereas wealthy people don't rely on Social Security, they have other forms of savings. There was actually a gentleman by the name of Sam Beard, who was Bobby Kennedy's coordinator in Bed-Stuy uh, back in the 60s, who came to me with, and talked about the idea of personal accounts for Social Security as a way in which we can enable low-income people to cash in on that savings the same way wealthy people can. And that led me into the Social Security fight. Well, and it's... it's um Exactly. And one of the challenges with Social Security, of course, uh, in addition to those you pointed out, but uh, a real, what people often don't understand is there's no liquidity tied to it. And so there's no opportunity for generational transfer of wealth uh, that it would be provided with a private account as opposed to a Social Security account. Well, that's right. Uh, Jagadish Gokhale and some other scholars have done some significant look at the intergenerational transfer of wealth. And what they've suggested is that uh, wealthy people actually have assets that they can transfer to their heirs, which means that their kids will be wealthy as well. Whereas low-income people have Social Security, which doesn't transfer to your heirs, uh, and therefore they, get, they fall further behind. Uh, Jagadish and others uh, have suggested that we could, uh, within about three generations, we could cut the uh, inequality in America in about half if we allowed poor people to, to save part of their Social Security taxes. Right. And the same effect, of course, is uh, tied to defined benefit plans for those, those who have uh, a pension, whereas, you know, a 401k or a 403b, for example, allows one to save and generate wealth that ultimately can be passed on to generations uh, so there's, there's several moving parts to this very complex problem, it sounds like. Well, absolutely. Or an employee stock option plans, which basically allow uh, low-income workers to become part of their employer. If we want to talk about the poor owning the means of production, that's, that's, these are the type of ways to do that, is actually letting them own equity in the American economy. Such as home ownership would be a good example of that. Yeah, home ownership is a tricky one. We have to decide for ourselves whether or not we think home ownership is an investment or a place to live. And uh, what we, we've done basically is create situations in which we lock people out of having a place to live because other people see it as an investment. So that's what you end up with, things like zoning laws and land use restrictions and things of that nature that actually block low-income people from being able to take part in that home ownership. Uh, it's because we basically have a kind of a, a hybrid system in which your home is basically your biggest piggy bank. It's the biggest asset most people own. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, we can't promise that your property values are going to go up forever. Right, right. Are, are there examples of, uh, well, there are. There are examples of, uh, of, of often nonprofits that are involved in equity creation uh, for the poor uh, in different parts of the country and, and kind of the relationship, not just between the creation of equity, but kind of, uh, kind of ha being involved, having, I don't like this phrase, but having skin in the game, which improves just the overall quality of life of, you know, the sphere of influence from the, the neighborhood to the community to the schools, et cetera. Uh, so there are... Yeah. 
Absolutely. And part of it is an educational program that teaches people about equity. Part of it is the uh, is basically the having within low-income communities the type of investment advice that's out there. I mean, Merrill Lynch is not building a lot of inner-city offices. I mean, but we actually need to encourage that sort of thing to happen so that yeah. low-income people can get in on this. I agree. I agree. So is it safe to say, uh, you probably wouldn't use this term, so I'll use it for you. Is it, is it safe to say that when I look at your work and the body of your work, I would describe you as something that's very, very much needed in our society as a public intellectual. Do you, do you kind of see yourself that way? And, and if you do, how do you think about your responsibility as a, as a public intellectual? Got it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've been you know, accused of being one, so I don't know whether or not I think it's a good thing or not. Uh, but I will say I, I do think I have a responsibility to rigorous research and to being willing to have an open mind toward my research. Uh, at the beginning of my latest book, The Inclusive Economy, one of the things I discussed is the fact that I have, over the years, changed at least my emphasis in terms of how to deal with the poor, that my original work focused very heavily on welfare programs, which I don't believe are effective at reducing poverty. And they, they probably gave an impression that I said, everybody should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I've said, the more research I've done, the more I've talked to low-income people, the more I've been out in poor communities and communities of color, uh, the more I've found that that is a little simplistic and that we need to deal with some broader issues if we're going to get this done. And so I've, I've basically shifted uh, my emphasis and where I think we should be paying attention and, and how we should be talking about these issues. And I think that that's important is that people get wedded to their positions and defending their positions no matter what. They don't seem to be open to new data, and people should be. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's... Uh, in a way, I think that's the sign of a liberated mind. And uh, uh, so talk about some of those. You, you mentioned some of the broader issues that you've just learned over the course of your career and in, in sort of being an honest uh, sort of consumer of, of the facts, of the evidence of, of your research. What are some of the broader issues maybe that, that you've learned over the last five years or 10 years in your research that you weren't aware of or didn't think about uh, prior to that point? How have you grown that way? Sure. I, I think we need to, you know, when I talk about poverty and how we should solve poverty, one of the things we need to start with is why are people poor in the first place? I mean, if you were a doctor, you wouldn't start prescribing medicine until you knew what the underlying disease was. And I think that we need to do that in terms of prescribing solutions to poverty. Now, there's generally two theories uh, of why people are poor out there. One is what's called the, the uh, culture of poverty or individual behavior theory of poverty that, that points to the fact that a lot of reasons why people are poor is their own behavior. Um, this works a lot of something called the success sequence, which says basically that if you finish school, you get a job, you don't have children until you're married, you're very unlikely to be poor. And there's a lot of statistical evidence to back that up. And I think that that's probably where I was uh, in my terms of my thinking for many years. And in my early works, I think I stressed those issues very strongly. However, one of the things that's, that's become more apparent 
is that while choice matters, our individual decisions matter, we make those decisions and choices within certain constraints. That quite simply, a someone growing up uh, in a middle-class suburb, a uh, white kid growing up in a middle-class suburb, is going to end up making very different choices and decisions than a poor minority child in the inner city, in an area where there's no jobs, where the schools are lousy, where the cops hassle you every time you set foot outside your door. They're going to end up making very different sets of choices and decisions. And so we should recognize that those structural issues, uh, race, gender, economic dislocation, matter uh, in, in terms of the overall consequences of our decision making. So those structural issues, so we've got the kind of the two, the culture of poverty, the success sequence, and then uh, kind of the, 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 the cultural issues is maybe how I describe them. Um, the structural issues, would that be what in some, some of our listeners will hear this, are fair, pretty sophisticated consumers of information. Is this, is this what you would refer to as some of the systemic issues related to poverty? Yeah, exactly. And the two interact with each other. And I, I think you've got to take both into account. You can't, I, you know, I think it's very demeaning to suggest that the poor have no decisions and choices in life. Nothing they do matters. They're the winds, you know, the chaff blown on the winds of fate and uh, everything is outside of their control. That's kind of demeaning to the poor. I mean, they, you know, to pretend that they don't matter. On the other hand, I think you really can't say, well, they should just uh, do this or do that, irrespective of the situations they live in and the circumstances they're brought up in, uh, and, and the systemic problems, uh, say, race and gender in our country, that really can have an influence on how people behave. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you just one example. Uh, conservatives uh, and a lot of market economists have for years pointed out the fact that if you have children outside of marriage, you are far more likely to be poor. It's about five times more likely to be poor than if you wait till you're married before you have children. And this has meant that a lot of conservatives have pushed this idea of we need to, we need to encourage people to get married to, uh, more. We need to incentivize marriage. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, marriage matters. On the other hand, scholars like William Julius Wilson from Harvard, for example, have pointed out that if you're uh, a poor woman growing up in the inner city, there's not a great pool of minority computer programmers waiting to marry you. That we have a criminal justice system, for example, that has taken a million and a half young black men out of the marriage pool because they're involved in the criminal justice system. They're on jail, they're on probation, or they have a criminal record that makes it impossible for them to get a job and support a family. So exactly who are these women supposed to marry? Uh, and if you, you have to look at both sides of that, uh, that equation if you really want to get anything done. So that would, it seems to me, that's one of the, as we talked earlier as a, as a libertarian, that's one of the, uh, I don't want to say advantages, but that that perspective uh, kind of facilitates within you the opportunity to honestly see both sides of that coin. Is is that a fair insight? It certainly allows me to speak to both sides of that coin. I don't feel like I have a vested interest in either defending the and saying it's all about structural issues or and, and choice doesn't matter. 
or that it's all about choice and we don't have any structural problems in our society. I think there's two, both sides tend to get so vested in their position and we have red team, blue team beating each other up that people miss the fact that they're both sides have something to say. Yeah, I agree. And I want to, I want to talk about what that something to say is, but I want to probe a little bit uh, before we run out of time here. We've got about seven minutes left uh, about sort of what you see happening, the, the downstream effects now of, uh, of COVID-19 and the economy coming to a halt. And, you know, in our area now, we'll, we'll be at 25% unemployment uh, before this thing finally settles. Um, and of course, there's no question that the poor, uh, that brown black communities, uh, that marginalized communities are going to uh, experience this more so than, than uh, many other communities. So what do you see things, what, what, how do you make sense of some of this? What if you were to uh, sort of look into the future, you know, am I overreacting or is this looking pretty difficult as we look into the next uh, the next year, the next five years. What, have you reflected on that yet? Yeah, I, I do think that as we look at coming out of the the economic shutdown that we went through, and we can argue about whether it was justified or not, or whether it's still, you know, I think initially it was, and then probably opening up makes sense now. But uh, But I think that we have to look at the fact that it did not fall equally across the board. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, most white-collar workers, uh, which is uh, largely a white population, they can work from home. Their their jobs were largely intact. But it's the people who lost their jobs or people who couldn't had, had jobs that were in the service industry or the manufacturing industry, jobs that could not be readily transferred to your computer at home, uh, the type of thing that, that we were much more e able to do. And those jobs are going to be harder coming back. Um, and we just celebrated recently the fact that unemployment was not uh, is not as bad as expected. It's still, I think, huge. It's in the mid-teens. But if you look at beyond that and down into, for example, African-American unemployment, that's still over 20%. Uh, those, the question is going to be, they're always sort of the uh, African-Americans tend to be the last hired and first fired and their rehiring is going to be much slower. And the question is how much structural unemployment is going to linger uh, with us into the fall and probably early into next year as well uh, before we see uh, any real recovery. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's discouraging, of course. And, and I think part of this, so we can debate whether, you know, the stimulus the COVID stimulus and its its magnitude and was that good economic policy, necessary economic policy, poor economic policy. I, I was on a conference call the other day with, with a very senior member of the United States Senate and he uh, indicated that there'll be very likely be a, a kind of a COVID-19 uh, stimulus two uh, or three or however many. Um, has it seems to me that that stimulus has, if you want to call it that, has been a little bit like throwing spaghetti on a wall and we'll see what sticks. Uh, but the yeah, whole I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good description of it. 
I think they realized they had to do something. And even uh, yeah. someone who's as devoted to limited government and uh, generally just likes uh, income transfers as I uh, do. I think this was sort of a, a sui generis uh, situation. You had a massive increase in unemployment almost overnight, and you had it caused, in effect, by the government. Now, there's there's some debate. A lot of it was actually occurring voluntarily because people were afraid of COVID and not go, doing work or not going to, to, to restaurants and so on. But then you had the government come in and literally shut things down, turn off the switch. Right. I think that makes for a certain responsibility on government to help people uh, that they've heard, <laughs> in, in effect, and help right. take care of them. Uh, on the other hand, because they had to do all this overnight, they didn't really have any time to think about it. We didn't have real hearings on what's the best approach or whatever. We had uh, Mnuchin and Pelosi and a couple of others sort of negotiate uh, a deal that they thought could get passed. And it, and it contains a lot of areas that are problematic. Uh, people, there's actually people earning more by being on unemployment than they were earning prior to that. It's locking a lot of small businesses in place. That, that would have gone out of business anyway, because that's what a lot of small businesses do. And so we're sort of frozen everything uh, and trying to paper over the, the, it over with money. I'm not sure we're necessarily reinventing the economy for a post-COVID world, which is what we really need to do. Well, and that certainly is, is uh, I hope, one of the contributions you and your colleagues uh, as public intellectuals and as, as uh, you know, members of Cato are able to, to help all of us uh, think through. I know I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about our students, and as we wrap this up, you know, I, I think, for example, those students that graduated this spring, you know, they're looking at, you know, entering into this job market is, is going to be very tough uh, on them. Um, what what advice would you give to the graduates of uh, the class of 2020 as they navigate the next six to 12 months in their careers? What are some things that they can do in their job search? And what are some things that they can do to, uh, in addition to what they've already done, perhaps to stabilize the foundation from which they will be operating and, and moving into their, their professional lives? Sure, two things are that they should do. One is to be flexible. The American economy is very dynamic and very flexible. Uh, jobs that existed uh, four months ago are going to go away and maybe not come back. But other jobs are going to appear that we didn't even think about uh, as we respond to COVID. I mean, if you just think of all the people now doing things like Zoom, uh, that, that was uh, an afterthought uh, three or four months ago. So when they go out and look for jobs, they shouldn't necessarily say, well, this was the job I was planning on. That's the only thing I'm looking for. They should be, you know, looking at the broad scheme of things and see what's out there and matches well with their talents. The other thing is I would urge them to save because they're not going to be able to depend on Social Security when they get to retirement age. And when crises like this happen, they, you know, they talk about the average American not being able to scrape up $400 in savings. That's particularly true of young people who haven't had a lot of, a lot of time. They are going to encounter, if not this crisis, other crises in their life. Having savings is an important thing. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, one of the things I think we've done well here, Michael, and we can certainly do better, but years ago we, we hired a, uh, uh, an individual, full-time individual uh, financial planner. And, and the purpose of the financial planner was to work with students. And uh, every time that a student took out a loan to sit down to kind of game out what that loan meant, 
what the payment schedule would be like. And uh, we've, we, through that process, we've been managed to, to keep our student loan debt uh, really far lower than the national average. And uh, it's that we can still do better. So, uh, but we've also learned that this financial planner works, works with families and uh, spends a good part of his time working with families of students. And I think, uh, uh, you know, that goes back to where we started in that, um, you know, savings, uh, the opportunity to, to live a little more disciplined of, of a financial life where, wherever we start uh, buys us independence as we move through our life is maybe one way to think about it more and more independence, which I think we can both agree is a good thing for, for us as humans and allows us choice in ways that maybe uh, we don't have if we're restricted in our opportunities and our ability to earn. Uh, so Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the, the ultimate purpose of all public policy should be human flourishing. We want yeah. everybody to rise as far as their talents will take them. We want everybody to be masters of their own destiny. And that does require that sort of independence, including financial independence. Michael Tanner, thank you. Uh, I, I suspect you have a busy day before you. We really want to uh, thank you for being on our blog today and on this podcast, uh, Conversations uh, with Leaders. And we thank you for, for your role in our society as a public intellectual and, and for your research. And I really would like to get you back to campus again sooner rather than later. So thank you for being with us and uh, God bless. We, thank, we appreciate your work very much. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate that. As soon as they open up travel again, I'd love to come out and, and talk on your campus. And until then, I would urge people to, to look for my latest book, The Inclusive Economy. Uh, it's on Amazon or at a bookstore near you. Well, I'm going to go buy it right now, but then you have to sign it when you're here. You got it. <laughs> All right, Michael. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for listening to Conversations on Leadership Matters. Go to jeffbullock.com to subscribe.